You know the one? You know the one? You told your friend Bernice I'm some kind of jet pilot? What was I supposed to say? They stuck you in an insane asylum? It wasn't an insane asylum, Grace. I explained to you back then that it was for exhaustion. Exhaustion? Yes, exhaustion. You haven't worked a day in your life. How could you be exhausted? Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Style Guide with your host, Dave Morris and Stephen Orr. How are you doing today, Dave? I'm doing good, Steve. How you doing, man? I'm doing good. I'm doing very good. I'm uh, I'm eager to talk about Wes Anderson. Yeah, I'm, I'm I uh, I rewatched a couple of Wes Anderson movies this week, uh, and it was it's funny because I I did a rewatch maybe like three four months ago, and watched all of them, all of them, every Wes Anderson movie because like I hadn't really seen the Darjeeling Limited. Uh, I think I saw it once, but so I rewatched it a few months ago. Uh, and the Fantastic Picture Fox. I forgot how great that movie was. So I, I've done a few rewatches of Wes Anderson in the last six months, and uh, totally worth it. Totally worth it. Yeah, he's one of those. He's one of those filmmakers that I can just return to again and again and enjoy the movie as if for the first time. Yeah, and that's the 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 great thing is like the first time through it's wonderful, and then the next time through you can watch it like for more details and little things that you might have missed or you can just put it on in the background and let it sort of like wash over you and just enjoy it like it it hits a lot of different notes it's beautiful yeah yeah and i'm i'm actually a big fan of pretty much all of his works i like i like the range i don't i don't find that he had a dip when uh life aquatic and darjeeling where people generally thought that he wasn't very good anymore uh, I'm pretty sure Life Aquatic was definitely a hit, as far as I know. A lot of people think it's like a lot. A lot of what I hear from other people is that Life Aquatic is one of their favorites or their favorite. But Darjeeling, Darjeeling, definitely a dip. I definitely agree with the Darjeeling dip. Um, <laughs> it's the one where you watch and you're like, yeah, it's all right, but it, it's not the same. Well, and and I think we'll talk about it later. But it is in a lot of ways very different in tone and mood than the rest of his uh his films yeah definitely all right cool so where do we want to start want to start uh with the the wes anderson style like what are what are the the things we notice about his style the wes anderson isms yeah let's start wes Wes anderisms wes westerisms (laughs) does he have a middle name no like well i mean he must but i'm sure he does actually Uh, you want me to find it no Uh, i'm just i'm now remembering that wonderful scene in the royal tenenbaums where the daughter is saying, you don't even know my middle name, do you? And he says, that's a trick question. You don't have one. And then she says it, but I I can't place it. I can't remember it either. Uh, his middle name is Wales. Wales. Wesley Wales Anderson. Pretty good name. Pretty that good. Is, name. That is a children's author name right there. Yeah. So uh, Wes Anderson. Actually, you know what? I, I kind of want to. Can we, can we talk about our first introduction to Wes Anderson? Certainly. Like, do you remember the first movie you ever watched? I do. Because I do. It was uh, the first one I ever watched was Rushmore. Oh. And I heard about it first. It's this weird kind of like like artsy film. I had no idea what that meant or who Wes Anderson was. Of course, no one really did when Rushmore came out. I think the Royal Tenenbaums may have been out at the time. Okay. But Rushmore was what my friends wanted to watch. And so we watched it. And I just sort of remember laughing and being amazed because not not because not necessarily just because it was funny, but because it was funny in this way that I was I'd never really watched a comedy like that before, and kind of just like like just thinking to myself like this is this is brilliant comedy, not just like comedy comedy. Uh, it reminded me of when I first saw The Office, the British Office. 
Right. And I just sort of, I didn't laugh when I watched The British Office for the first time. But I was just like, this is so funny. But I didn't laugh out loud. Uh, Rushmore had that same sense. I was like, this is so funny. Like, Bill Murray just jumped over a fence before he answered his cell phone. I don't, wh- why? That's amazing. Like, it's it was so clever. Well, and I actually had a very similar sort of experience where I I was dumbfounded after and during watching. Uh, I, I got into uh, Anderson sometime... Probably even after Darjeeling had been released, maybe not. Mm, okay. But yeah. but but my first Wes Anderson was The Life Aquatic. Yeah. Where a friend sat me down and said, "You haven't seen Wes Anderson. This is a movie that you need to see." And I I did, and I sat there, and just that very similar sort of amazement at the the maturity of his comedy or the depth of his comedy. It it. I I hadn't seen anything like it either. Yeah, it it's so funny. It is, it is, and I I've been trying to think of people who imitate Wes Anderson now, because he's at he's at that point in his career where there are people who are going to be taking up his styles and his his techniques. Like I think about Tarantino and how after Pulp Fiction. There was an entire decade of people telling movies out of sequence. Yeah, for sure. Like, like just his influence on the rest of the film world. Yeah. Yeah, and I've been having, I've been really struggling at who has been trying to take up that uh, the Wes Andersonisms. I don't know. I can't think of anyone off the top of my head that is clearly like, ah, uh, they're taking Wes Anderson style. I think it might be a, a younger generation that we just haven't been introduced to yet. You know, like film students right now are probably going to be very influenced by his work. So a lot of the newer directors and writers in this coming decade may be very Wes Andersonized. Yeah. At least, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be too upset by it because I think it would be great. I yeah, I I think that it will. I think there are going to be some fun takes because. Just like Tarantino, uh, Anderson is an expert in film. Yeah, and that is something I wanted to talk about as well. Uh, I don't know, I guess we're talking about it now, that he loves film and he loves actors and he loves the, 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 he loves movies. He absolutely does. And the, I mean, the depth of what he knows uh, and, and shows up on screen is just immense i'm i'm sure there are people who are much more into cinema than i am who can pick apart his scenes and place where the references are from and you know Mm -hmm. where where in say citizen kane he's drawing on or something like that but i'm I'm just aware of it on an intellectual level that something is happening behind uh, the screen yeah uh, in anderson's mind but i'm not i i just don't have enough knowledge to to share in that experience yeah, he he also like explores his own work too. Like like the life aquatic is hinted at almost in Rushmore with the amount of aquatic uh, um, references and things, and the book that he's reading about the life of uh, what's his name Jacques Cousteau. Yeah, uh, and how that is like a big influence on the life aquatic. So you can kind of see like Wes Anderson spilling into all the different movies. Yeah, there's a sense in which I think all of his movies take place in the same universe. Yeah, or a similar kind of universe for sure. Well, I guess like the Fantastic Mr. Fox, I think, is a different universe, but they all have their own type, own style of universe, I guess. Yeah, and I think I think there are deeper connections than you see at first pass. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, certainly there are. 
So it's interesting. Your your favorite or your introduction was the Life Aquatic, which was the first one he wrote without Owen Wilson. Because uh, ah. Owen Wilson helped write Rushmore and the Royal Tenenbaums. I did not know that. Yeah, and the Life Aquatic was the first one he wrote with uh, someone else. So someone who I think worked on a couple other movies with him as well. Uh, Noah Baumbach. Oh, okay, Baumbach. I know the name. Yep. Noah Baumbach. He also worked on uh, the Fantastic Mr. Fox with him, and maybe something else. Maybe the Grand Budapest. No. So it, it's neat because. Uh, the Rushmore was written with, I, I think, almost by, mostly by Owen Wilson, with Wes Anderson's help, and then the Royal Tenenbaums was the two of them. Uh, and Rushmore had a lot more Owen Wilson in the story of it. Like a lot of the influence on that movie was from Owen Wilson's actual life and the actual school he got kicked out of, and and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, which I think is neat because it does make Rushmore feel like a very different kind of movie than the rest of them, even though it feels so Wes Anderson. See, so I, I first watched Rushmore this week for the podcast. Yeah, what did you think of it? What did you think? Well, if that that knowing that Owen Wilson was involved with it so much, it feels autobiographical. Yes, yeah. And and I was I was trying to place because it didn't quite seem to me that Wes Anderson was uh, the Max character. Something about that seemed off in yeah. in my picture of, of Wes Anderson. But it did have this very much, I'm telling you a story from my life experience. And it was just magnified through the Wes Anderson lens. Yeah, definitely. Which is something that he does so well. He He tells stories that I think anyone could tell most of Wes Anderson's, like the core story, anyone could tell it, but his lens transforms these relatively commonplace and benign stories about a boy who falls in love with his teacher or two six-year-olds who fall in love with each other for the first time or whatever but his lens magnifies that world so wonderfully yeah uh and actually you know um something i did read when i was when i was reading stuff which i tried i didn't do too much reading for this but uh um about rushmore was that owen wilson and wes anderson were trying to give it this raw doll feel, like they wanted to make it feel like it was happening in a fairy tale world or some sort of hyper reality. Uh, and then later, of course, so that he went on to direct Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is raw doll. But um, but just that that's what they were going for. And you you see it. And I remember that was the thing that made me so dumbfounded when I first watched Rushmore was like, this is like no other comedy I've watched. It's, in, it's not even in my universe. Uh, and as the movies go on, it gets you almost more and more into that sort of this. But this is a fantasy world that we're living in here. And if you go through them like uh, in order, it's so true. Like Rushmore to the Tenenbaums to Life Aquatic, uh, Darjeeling Limited, weird little dip, um, Fantastic Mr. Frost, Moonrise Kingdom, and then the Grand Budapest Hotel. Like Grand Budapest Hotel is like the peak of that sort of this is in a, a raw Dalian type world. Yeah, and and that's that's the interesting thing for me having having those two be the bookends of where he's at right now because I think he's going to have to make a pivot. I don't think he can tell another story similar to the Grand Budapest in that it's that fantastic magical folktale sort of style. I don't I think I think he's going to go in a different direction. Or or I would be interested in seeing if he does go in a different direction because that feels like the pinnacle of his work yeah of his very wes anderson-y work i know yeah i mean it's it's interesting actually to look at the different movies as a whole as like his work as a as a whole and see like what is where has he pivoted because like if you look at all the different types of stories he's told they are all very different stories 
like Rushmore is like a, a high school love triangle kind of story. Uh, the Royal Tenenbaums is like a dysfunctional family. The Life Aquatic is like an underwater explorer story. Uh, like the, it's Moby Dick, you know, hunting his great white whale. Darjeeling Limited is like these three brothers kind of on a road trip, basically. Uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox is like a heist movie. Uh, and Moonrise Kingdom is like a like an escape and chase film. <laughs> and then the Grand Budapest Hotel is this like epic, magnificent uh Heist movie, almost. It is somewhat of a heist movie. Uh, It it is very similar, I guess, to Moonrise Kingdom now that I think about it. But like how it's gone, he's gone through a whole bunch of different kinds of stories. So I'm curious what comes next. Is he going to do a kung fu movie? Like he hasn't done one of those yet. Or like a Western? You know, he hasn't done a cowboy kind of story. Yeah, and you can see cowboy influences throughout him and that sort of stuff. Or you can see kung fu influences. He is really good at just mixing together different genres to produce a Wes Anderson story and a Wes mm-hmm. Anderson style. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I think now's a good time to get into this style because yes. uh, we've watched it evolve throughout all these movies. So like the first thing that I think everyone would know or agree with about Wes Anderson's style is the, uh, the symmetricalism, the symmetry of it. Yes. Uh, and like the joke that you could cut the screen down the middle and only watch half of it and you get right. the whole movie, right? Because it's just like you just, Double, like flip it <laughs> it's not entirely true and like you see a lot of moments where he breaks that symmetry but definitely definite use of splitting the screen down the middle uh and either having the same thing on both halves or or one half telling one story and the other half telling another story well and that was watching rushmore is where it was really startling for me in that i i saw that in his later films where he had he has the opportunity to do that better because he's creating the world and he's cre- so the set the sets are all designed so that he can do that but rushmore is is much more traditional locations for most of it yeah i think a lot of it was filmed at his old high school actually which makes sense right and so yeah. so the shots don't uh they don't always have that sort of symmetry but they cer- he certainly tries to and then when he changes from that symmetry it's almost unnerving or it almost it, it's done to tell you something about that shot or about that scene or about that character. Mm-hmm. And so it he creates and establishes a convention so that when he breaks it, you you notice it and you yeah. you watch a little closer or, or or you find that that's the moment where Bill Murray's character in Rushmore is kind of at his darkest when he when he breaks off the center of the screen. Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah. And also like what is at the center of the screen? Uh, it, like he, he centers things a lot, which I find interesting. Like you, you'd normally think like that's your first instinct when you're filming is to center everything. And then you realize like, whoa, whoa, whoa don't center everything. Put things on the corners or the sides. And, and you know, as you learn about film uh, and Wes Anderson's gone through that and then back to centering things, but so intentionally uh, as opposed to, like he's put thought into why he's doing it as opposed to just doing it because it seems right. Like like in Rushmore, there's so many moments where a character moves, sits down, right center frame. Yeah. And it's like, well, interesting. Why did he choose center? Yeah. And and, and you see that also in, uh, I'm, I'm thinking Moonrise Kingdom, where everything happens at the center of the screen, or not everything, but most of it does. And it, it really creates a... A stark frame you know you're looking at a frame more than just about 
any other film which tries to almost have the camera become invisible. Oh, yeah. It's where it's like an eye. In, in Wes Anderson's, he wants you to know at all times that you are watching a framed narrative. Yeah, and I, I totally agree with that statement, that he wants you to see the camera work. He wants you to notice the camera. And uh, like I always think of it when I'm watching Wes Anderson movies, that it's like I'm watching a series of paintings. Like he's just, he's in his mind created this beautiful image and then he recreates it perfectly and then films it for us. Uh, and just like it's just a series of those throughout the entire film. Yeah, it it's funny. It makes me think of the most recent Mad Max movie, Mad Max Fury Road. Mm-hmm. And I know that seems silly, but the one of the beautiful things about that movie is all of the action always takes place center frame. The director said to his cinematography team, anytime there's action, point the camera straight at what's going on. I never want you to be off to the side. I want I want everyone to know exactly where every single action scene is going to happen. And so it's much more coherent and easier to pay attention to. Yeah, and when it's going through a bunch of quick action, it's your, your eye just stays on the same part of the screen. Exactly. And so I find with a Wes Anderson movie, I'm doing the same thing. I'm watching in the center of the screen. And then in the second pass or the third pass of the sometimes the scene or sometimes the entire movie... I'm paying attention to what's going on around it. And I'm able to see things that I didn't catch because I was so focused where he was directing my attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so, so so beautiful. It's such beautiful. They're beautiful films to look at. And you could really just take any frame from one of his movies and look at it and just be like, ah, oh, that's beautiful. What a beautiful. Yeah. Uh, especially the later movies. And I do agree with you that in Rushmore, he still didn't quite have the, I guess, budget or sway to do that. But uh, as his movies have gone on, definitely more and more, uh, it's just perfectly, perfectly framed and super beautiful. Well, and uh, even in Rushmore, I think about the two or three plays of Max's that we see put on, where we see the 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 cop drama, and then <laughs> yeah. we see the the Vietnam War drama. <laughs> so funny. And but but those those are again framed exactly. Uh, in the, in the same way that he does it with this symmetrical sort of style and the frame is always present and yeah so he he was playing with it there he just hadn't expanded it to the entirety of the film yet probably because it's ungodly expensive yeah uh but oh man oh man is is that so funny to me <laughs> that vietnam play that he does at the end it's so good <laughs> adios esposito <laughs> say a prayer for surf boy like oh my god it is perfect it is just so like this is what a high school kid would want to write if he could and had the budget to do it that is the play he would put together just like an army play with flamethrowers and helicopters oh it's brilliant but it's also in 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 there it's so beautiful that he's he's telling what he imagines bill murray's story to be right yeah because, you know, Bill, Bill Murray was there and, and, <laughs> and crying. And yeah. And he's just crying the whole time watching this play. And everyone else has goggles and he doesn't. And he's just like, no, I lived through it. Yeah. Were you, were you in the shit? Yeah, I was in the shit. <laughs> okay. All right. Sorry. I could talk. I could just talk about Rushmore for like four hours. I love that movie. Yes. Uh, and that is my favorite Wes Anderson movie. I'm throwing my hat in with Rushmore. That's no surprise. But But he takes that same sort of mentality throughout... Uh, and and continues it on throughout just about everything, which 
I think when I when I think of Darjeeling Limited, I the scenes that I remember are are the ones that are off kilter. Like I remember them running to catch the train at the end. Mm -hmm. I remember them in the marketplace and and both of those scenes are so on Wes Anderson and how they're framed. Yeah. I I I would be interested in rewatching that movie through the perspective of framing shots and seeing mm-hmm. if he did something different. Yeah. Yeah. Um so visual visual look is definitely the one thing. But I think also there's the the look in in uh in like the set design and the almost uh I want to use the word flamboyant, but I don't know if that's the right word. Maybe maybe eccentric, maybe uh a uh, look of everything in his in his movies. Uh, like the fact that in like the Grand Budapest hotels, like those pink boxes and stuff like that. And, uh, and just like the color choices and how bright and, uh, extravagant. What's the word I'm looking for here? There's a word I'm looking for. It's a good one. Well, I mean, I imagine it, uh, the, the pastel colors, but that's not what you're going. Yeah. Yeah. No, like, yeah. Pastel colors and just very like, uh, like almost kitschy. Is that the word? Kitsch. Okay. Yeah. Like, like that kind of look where it seems just like, so, uh, in your face. Like look at look at these colors. Look at look at look at this uh, this uh, the the painting I made for you. Yeah, yeah. They they are meant to pop out at you. Um, I think of the submarine and Life Aquatic, or their uniforms in Life Aquatic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or the the scout uniforms as well from Moonrise Kingdom, or the way that the the grass is greener than green. It becomes unnatural. Yeah, in the same way he wants you to notice how the camera and how how everything is framed, he wants you to notice the set and the costumes and actually like uh, be aware of the choices that were made there, instead of what we see a lot in film, which is like have everything kind of blend in and look real that we don't even notice it and we just listen to the actors tell their story. You know, like he wants you to notice everything. Yeah, like in the Life Aquatic, when we see the creatures. They're deliberately not creatures, right? Like they're they the the shark doesn't look like a shark, and the yeah. seahorses don't look like seahorses. Like they're he doesn't want you to believe that this is meant to be real. Yeah, again that that raw doll heightened reality. Yeah, yeah. There is never a moment where you're supposed to forget that he's telling you a story. Yeah, it's it's uh it's beautiful. It's just it just makes his films so unique to themselves. Yeah, there, there's sort of a radical whimsy, is is how I imagine it to all of his his visuals, and even in something like Rushmore, where outside of those plays he doesn't have the the opportunity to be in your face as whimsical, mm-hmm. he still manages to to give you those senses. So like the there are shots through the aquarium where the characters are interacting and, and you see the fish, fish yeah and the fish yeah. are swimming kind of magically yeah yeah and it, it's meant to just just give you this feeling of unreality mm-hmm. which he then later on goes on to really reinforce when he frames his narratives through multiple steps of narrators like grand budapest is probably the height of it where i think the actual story is being told through four layers of narration <laughs> yeah. or something like that. Yeah, it's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, but but he, he does that throughout as well. Uh, there is a narrator through throughout Royal Tenenbaums. I think Alec Baldwin. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So he's the narrator or the little bits of narration we get in Moonrise Kingdom from the character who then joins the story. Yeah. And Life Aquatic as well. It's all told through like a documentary film style narrative. Yeah. Right. A lot lot of it is a lot of the like they show scenes that they filmed before. Mm -hmm. And that's a great example where they uh, they're even commenting on the fakeness of the story that they're telling. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And so he... He's always, I mean, if Mamet can be said to making to be making movies about making movies in Hollywood, I think Wes Anderson writes movies about his own sort of writing process. Hmm. Like he he's very much letting you know that the writer is a character in the story that that's being told. Yeah. There's never a point where Wes Anderson is removed from a Wes Anderson story. And this is, uh, have you seen, he, he did a few commercials. I never saw any of his commercials, no. He, he did a MasterCard commercial or an American <laughs> Express commercial. And it's a commentary, it's, it's on location while he's shooting a film. And it's poking fun at the Wes Anderson style. Oh, that's funny. It, it is. It's a lot of fun. We'll put, we'll put a link to it in the show notes because yeah. I think it's worthwhile. But you are always aware that Wes Anderson is present in his storytelling. It makes me think of like to go like for like a really old reference here of uh, Charles Dickens. Uh, when you read a Charles Dickens novel, you hear Charles Dickens' voice and he wants you to know it's there. And when he makes a joke, he, re- he pats himself on the back in the, in the narration. <laughs> like yeah. the narrator's like, uh, well, he's, the character says something funny and the narrator's like, wasn't that funny? <laughs> like, and you're like, okay, we get it, Charles Dickens. Um, and Wes Anderson does that. He's like, hey, look at this. Look how Wes Anderson this is. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and that, that's a beautiful thing. Like the, that's why I think, a lot of his characters are writers or artists in a way. And so he can he can give them lines like, I wonder if it remembers me. And it's Bill Murray talking to the Jaguar shark. But it's also Wes Anderson talking to himself in this sort of how am I going to be remembered sort of way. Mm-hmm. You know, his his characters are versions of himself in that way. But he's also allowing them to speak through the characters. So... When fantastic in Fantastic Mr. Fox, when Mr. Fox is is waxing eloquently about, you know, why am I a fox? Why wasn't I an eagle or a beetle or something like that? And yeah. you know, how could a fox be happy if it's not uh, chasing chickens? You know, it's he's he's writing at different layers. Yeah, and the narrator isn't the narrator of the entire movie. Isn't always the narrator in the movie. <laughs> Which which makes it those layers so much more complicated, which is why I think Grand Budapest is such an interesting film, because the depth that he's telling uh, stories in there is he he's really achieved kind of uh, a level of expertise that you don't see very many filmmakers get to. I totally agree, and that uh, that the Grand Budapest is like the height of that uh, that um, depth. The height of that depth. <laughs> that is the sentence I just said. He has reached the height of depth. There we go. Uh, <laughs> that's a that's a mammothism right there. I know. That's awesome. I'm gonna use that forever. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's brilliant. Brilliant. 
one of the things that I love about Wes Anderson's sets is the the kind of dollhouse quality to them. Yeah, it it looks fake and you don't have to think it's real. No, and it's it's it gives me this childlike sense for for when he's designing a set, you know, he when he's building the the, the life aquatic submarine in his mind, he he just wants he wants you to be able to see a character's face through a porthole, even though <laughs> there's no way that that makes sense based on the size of the submarine. Or he wants you to see just a character's face through a window, even though it makes the window look comically large or small. Yeah, and he wants to be able to fit everyone perfectly squished into the submarine with like a perfect window around so you can see all of their faces, even though there's no way any of that would ever happen. Yeah. But who cares? Who cares? Doesn't isn't it isn't it doesn't it look great and doesn't it provide like make the story that much better? And you're like, yeah, it totally does. Yeah, and and that's that's the thing. He's always saying, "Who cares if this seems real?" Mm-hmm. And it does. It's where I do see more similarities between Tarantino and Wes Anderson. Uh, in that, who cares if it looks real? It looks great. Uh, and like you see that in Tarantino's films, he's like, "Yeah, I know this isn't realistic, but this is a film, and that's what I want it. This is I want it to be cinematic. I want Jules and and uh, Vince." to walk in perfect unison to the music and then pause and turn together and then turn and walk out the door. Like he wants it to look choreographed. And I see that with Wes Anderson too. He wants it to look perfect and, and choreographed and not real. It doesn't need to be real. Yeah, it, he's more interested, Tarantino's more interested in evoking the particular emotion or experience that he's trying to draw out which is why he uses the language he uses or the the amount of violence he uses or the just awesome shots that he uses like yeah. Inglorious Bastards is just full of Tarantino stacking very cool shots on top of each other yeah but that and that's where I see the similarity between Tarantino and Anderson is that they both just love stacking really nice shots on top of each other and uh and don't want it to don't want you to ever feel like you're not watching a movie it just works so well with works anderson so, oh, he does it so well um so uh, what what else uh, what other things about his style other than the visual we've been talking a lot about visuals which i'm sure we could even get into more about like the color palettes and everything if we really wanted to but we should move on a little because this podcast could take forever at this rate <laughs> well one, one of the things that uh i i i've found that i just love about him is there's an odd sort of nostalgia in in his in in both the visuals but also in the writing where he's I mean I guess the best way that I can think about it is he's telling folk tales that that exist kind of out of time and kind of out of place mm-hmm. and, and they're always with this retrospective looking back on whatever it is. Uh, I think, uh, like to me, when I think what I think where you're going in this in this direction is, it's almost as if all of them are uh, are stopped at a certain time, whether that's like the '70s or the the '80s of technology, and that's just where we kind of stop. We stop with things like record players, tape cassettes, um, those tubes that send messages. Pneumatic uh, tubes. Um, like a wooden crate of for beekeeping, you know, like everything is like, uh, I mean, what, what's the word? Ana, ana, not anaconda, anachronistic. Oh, yeah, anachronistic, yeah. Anachronistic, thank you. Uh, and that's that's like what, that he, so that's what I, what I think you mean by that nostalgia. Like it is, 
it is from a time past, even though some of them are taking place, place more or less in the present. Yeah, Darjeeling Limited, I think, could have taken place five, ten years ago. Yeah, and the Royal Tenenbaums, too. Like, it's not really, we don't really know when that is taking place, but it still has this anachronistic and yep. nostalgic feel about it. Uh, and I think that he just loves old things. He, he loves record players. He loves something that, like a crank telephone. He loves those kind of like old fashioned technological um, devices. Yeah, yeah. Although I think part of that leaks into his storytelling as well, because there's there's a way in which this nostalgia is always coming up against the present. Like Fantastic Mr. Fox is a great example where, you know, it's the story of this Fox family who, you know, they, they want to do things the, the way that they always have. And they're they're being pushed against capitalism and they're being pushed against these three farmers in the supermarket and it's 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 always this battle between trying to hold on to this past and the the press of the future that is ever ever present yeah i mean i think the life aquatic is the the uh, another perfect example of like how old everything is on his submarine or on, like on his submarine and on his ship it's all like really old fashioned things but then they do go to this state-of-the-art uh, technological, like uh, what, what's uh, Jeff Goldblum's characters, uh, right. like lab, and they steal all of his equipment because they need it. <laughs> um, so they're holding on to the past, but they need these futuristic uh, equipment. And it's, I think it's summed up nicely in the line. Is this an espresso machine? Love this espresso machine on the ship. I'm like, <laughs> they steal his espresso machine <laughs> like, just because they want espresso. Uh, so it has like this, this sort of like uh, nostalgia and anachronistic um lifestyle meet the present i think part of it too ends up being being melancholic where you can't hold on to the past forever like the fantastic mr fox i think is probably his most straightforward movie with regards to tone like it i don't i don't think that there's a lot of tonal shifts there that's a that's a fun comedy movie but it doesn't exactly end in a pleasant way, right? Like they, yeah, they have food in from the supermarket that they're going to be able to live on, but they don't get to live the life that they were trying to live. And I kind of feel the same way with with Moonrise Kingdom, right? Where it ends in this sort of happy way where these, these children are going to get together, but the entire movie has been in the backdrop of these failed relationships of their parents. And... And that's what they have to look forward to. Because there was a time when their parents were the children who were in love. Mm -hmm. But time is going to pass and they're going to eventually turn into their parents. I don't know. I just feel like there's a, there's, there a, there's a darkness to his comedy. Yeah. I mean, he definitely has, uh, I think he, he's even said on the record that his parents' divorce was the single most uh, influential moment of his life. And if you look at all of his movies with that in mind, I don't think any of the characters are in are not divorced. <laughs> like I feel like every character's been divorced uh, throughout. Or every they're single, orphans, or they're orphans, or they're going to get divorced, or they're getting divorced. I think Fantastic Mr. Fox is the only one where divorce isn't even brought up. <laughs> like it's it. that's the only one that is like pure of heart. Yeah, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Um, like the Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou, they're breaking up and 
all that sort of stuff. And the Darjeeling Limited, their parents are split up. Um, or their dad died, I guess. Uh, fa- Moonrise Kingdom, yep. Grand Budapest Hotel, nope. No divorce in Grand Budapest Hotel. But there's a lot of infidelity. Well, and the main character, the the boy, is an orphan. Is an orphan, yeah. Yeah, um, so there's still that split with family. Yeah, or, or yeah, family being divorced or uh, non, not two-parent families is really what it's about. Um, the other thing that I find beautiful about his movies, uh, when, speaking of relationships, is he seems to love this motif or this idea or this relationship of an older man and a younger boy. Uh, but never is it in a sexual way in any way at all. Never do you feel like it is inappropriate uh, because of like 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 that, you know, no pedophile, no pedophile tendencies. But there's almost like he loves this idea of an old man and a young boy teaming up together. Like if you look at look at Rushmore, the best friend between Bill Murray and uh, and Max Fisher, that is like that is a very uh, uncomfortable relationship in in like the real world. But in the movie, it's like no, this is just how they become friends. Uh, you see it again in like uh, the Life Aquatic. It's not as as disparate of a relationship because they are technically father and son, and he isn't that much younger than him. But you see it again in Moonrise Kingdom with the boy and kind of and and Bruce Willis's character kind of becoming like like talking like man to man, even though one is an older one and one is a young kid. And the Grand Budapest Hotel, like that, the whole movie is based along like if, you know, don't touch my lobby boy. Like it is, uh, and it's this weird like, uh, and I don't know why he chooses that kind of uh, age difference in the relationship there. I mean, I have some theories, but I, I just think I, I think it's it's so it makes his stories so much more unique. Yeah, well, and actually, even in in Rushmore, you see that that replicated with Max and his young friend. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so he has a huge age gap with his friend, and actually, you see in the Royal Tenenbaums as well with Bill Murray and his like uh, the kid that he's always <laughs> carrying around with him that he's right. testing. You know, like it's like what a strange, unusual relationship choice. And um, uh, oh, curly curly haired tracksuit. I'm. I, Ben Stiller. Ben Stiller and his children, right? Yeah. They're his children still, but it's that same sort of of relationship of and I think that has to do with the the themes of divorce in in his work. It's hmm. the it's the the father figure mentality that that is lost in the family so is sought elsewhere. Yes. And and uh and again, I, I got. I need to stress the fact that it's it's what makes it so much more beautiful is that never is it uh, sexual, uncomfortable, or awkward. It is always treated as like, yep, they're just friends. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And actually, even even in Rushmore, when I think about the the thing that could have been most uncomfortable with Max's infatuation with his teacher. Yeah, exactly. There's mm-hmm. there's there's no way that that is uncomfortable either, and. And this is something Anderson does very well. His his love or his even his infatuations, they're very pure. Yes, it's never with like secret dark motives. Yeah, yeah, it's he he has this ideal of love that that he captures perfectly on stage. And so when you have the the two children dancing around in their bathing suits on the beach in Moonrise Kingdom, it's never it never crosses the line into uncomfortable or sexual territory. It's it's cute. Yeah, and it's always I'm in love with her. Yeah. And it, it's never I just want to do her. You know, it's never that. It's always 
I'm in love with her. Although in Rushmore, actually, now that I think of it, right, there's the the whole um, Max telling other other boys that he uh, got a hand job from the whoever it was from yeah, the, yeah. the the friends the friend's the, mother the friend's mom yeah yeah and I and he strips away that sexual character to his writing pretty much immediately after that true uh, although it is uh, funny because it's about a hand job. Yes. Uh, it just makes it funny. It makes it such a high school statement. Um, and, okay, so the other thing uh, that is along a similar vein uh, that he really likes, and you see it when I watched Rushmore again, I was like, even in Rushmore? Wow, I didn't even notice uh, the first time I watched Rushmore. But he loves the the sort of idea of foreign, uh, foreign na- all, different, all different nationalities teaming up together. Uh Grand Budapest Hotel to me is like the greatest example of it. Uh, and again, the height of his depth because it's the uh, every single character has a different accent and is from a different country in this fictional country that he made up. Yeah. And in Grand Budapest Hotel, he he pulls it off very successfully um, in in other films. There's a there is a very white quality to it where all the main characters are white and it's the secondary servants that are well, that are racialized or or ethnic characters and I, and I guess to me it's not it's not so much about the the racializing of people it's like the like he just wants different uh, accents represented in his film and that's really it's, it's so I, I guess I shouldn't have said foreign uh, or nationalities but accents so if you look at uh, Grand Budapest Hotel we have uh, the the main character, um, Monsieur Gustave, who speaks Gustav. with like an English accent. Uh, we have uh, the girlfriend of uh, the lobby boy, who's Irish. We have the lobby boy, who kind of speaks in this like deadpan North American accent. We have um, uh, what's his name, uh, uh, Willem Dafoe, who right right is a different accent. We have. Uh, um, the French people, the, the the madam who like take care of her place. There's the French maid and the French butler guy. Uh, so like there are all these different accents, and it's like when you listen to it, it is like this this beautiful sort of soundscape of just different voices, and no one speaks with a, a normal accent, or no one speaks with the same accent. And when you go back and watch Rushmore again, keeping that in mind, and you yeah. see that the teacher is English, the bully is Scottish. Uh, and it's like, wh- why? Why did he make the bully Scottish? Why did he make the teacher English? Like, why not just have them all be from a place called Rushmore? But he wanted to have these different voices and these different uh, accents represented. Yeah, he he is fascinated with the auditory in in that regard, and I think I think he pulls that off really well. I uh, I, I think I just with the with the racial stuff, he I I haven't I don't want to say it's troubling because I think that's too strong. But there, there is an odd relationship that he has in in his pretty much everything prior to Grand Budapest, where there is this feeling where he's replicating relationships of exploitation or domination, mm-hmm. and you're wondering, is he doing it in an attempt to invert it or to play with it? And it's never, it, it never is really clear on stage, because that's not one of the messages he's sending. Like, yeah. It's not unusual for someone to have a black butler or 
or, or something along those lines in the time periods in which he's writing. At the same time, there isn't really a need to replicate that in his fantasy world. So why is he doing it? And I don't have an answer to that. It was just something that I noted. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, good point. Well, and it, and it and it's hard, right? Because so much of what he does in pretty much everything after Rushmore, but even then there, he, he plays with gender in really interesting ways. Like most mm -hmm. of the women that he writes are fully fledged characters or at least fully fledged for Wes Anderson. Yeah. And and they have their own adventures and their autonomy and they say no. Mm -hmm. Right? They're they're not just objects for the main character to to be to be passed around or to to be utilized. So it it's just interesting to see the the difference between how well he treats gender and what he's doing with race. And how race is very um if used at all is used exactly as you'd expect it to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, although even in Rushmore, I think he treats gender pretty good. The teacher is very well represented as like a fully fleshed out character. And and even uh, Margot or uh, Max's eventual uh, girlfriend, like yeah. the, she she's an interesting enough character. And she says something along the lines of you hurt me. And, and it's very clear that Max is an ass. And mm -hmm. she was just. Yeah. So I, I think you're right. He does do do that very well. Yeah. Um, unlike David Mamet. Um, another thing along these lines, sorry, uh, of, of accents, uh, is, uh, like Tarantino, he loves actors and he likes yes. having specific cast members in all of his films if he can get them. And even if he doesn't get them for, uh, for the main role of all of the films, he gets, a, finds a place for them in the film. Right, right. And you see, well, I mean, he... We don't need to say it, but Bill Murray and Owen Wilson and even Edward Norton, you know, they they reoccur and yeah. are and Jason, wonderful. Jason Schwartzman reoccurs. Uh, uh, what's her name? And Angelica Houston reoccurs. Uh, um, Adrian Brody, uh, right? Like uh, um, he and like Jeff Goldblum, he loves Willem Dafoe. He loves like you see all these uh, <laughs> same actors coming again and again throughout his films. Uh, and again, I think a lot of it is that he just loves the look of them and they look right for his film. And so he puts them in the film. Like Jason Schwartzman is like, to me, the the canonical Wes Anderson actor. Sort of deadpan, kind of awkward moving and looking, uh, but but perfect for the role. Yeah, I think part of that has to do with what he's asking out of his actors, because what I I hate children in films i hate them I, and he uses them so much <laughs> well and, but, but that's that's the beautiful thing he uses them expertly it's he is able to get a mature performance out of a child but at the same time he's able to get childish performances out of adults yeah and and childish performances are are incredibly difficult to do in a way that is worth watching but they it's 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 as if his characters meet at the middle in age where they still have this this whimsical attitude towards their childhood and they still believe in fantastical things but they they are somewhat more knowledgeable about the world and they've they've gotten used to it and they're more comfortable in their skin than a child ever is right mm -hmm. and so so his children are fun to watch and his adults are fun to watch but they're also capable of having serious conversations about 
whatever. Uh, about uh, in Rushmore, it's about the the nature of the 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 unrequited love, which would seem silly coming from a teenager uh, having that conversation with uh, with the the teacher that he's in love with. Yeah. Or in in Grand Budapest Hotel, where he has the conversation about how he's an orphan and uh, and. And that that that's his experience, and why he you know he does the things that he does, and it's such a it's such a mature conversation coming from a child. Yeah. This, at the same time, you also see, uh, you know, people like the scout leader in Moonrise Kingdom who acts very much uh, at his whimsy, right? Mm-hmm. And so his characters are always uh, able to hit that midpoint between childhood and adulthood. And he does get those performances out of people uh, really well, which I think is is I think one of the reasons Bill Murray keeps coming back is because Bill Murray perfectly fits that kind of comedy. Yeah, uh, just in his in all of his work, you know, that is like this is Wes Anderson films have been like the perfect place for him. And I think with Rushmore too, like he offered to do that movie for free, and I think he even gave money to that movie to make it happen because he loved the script so much. Like they weren't going to be able to afford it, and he was like, mm, "We'll do it." <laughs> that's that's lovely but but i think that's why he returns to the same actors so much because he's able to get that kind of performance out of them mm-hmm. whereas it's i mean it's hard to imagine well actually i was surprised when i saw bruce willis right in moonrise kingdom because yeah. he didn't seem like a wes anderson actor and yet he still got that performance out of him yeah and you know it, it is it is interesting to note the that Wes Anderson is slowly becoming like a Woody Allen type figure where every actor wants to be in a Wes Anderson movie. Like, I I feel like if Wes Anderson asked you to be in a movie, uh, no matter how famous an actor you are or whatever the rate he was offering you is, you would take it just because it would be such an amazing thing to be a part of, especially now. Like, like the fact that he gets like, like he got like Gwyneth Paltrow did the thing or uh, Kate Blanchett did a movie, George Clooney did a movie, Bruce Willis did a movie with him. Like he's getting these actors that it's like, oh wow, that is and just for like a one-off little part. Like this isn't like like it's uh like Jude Law did his movie. You know, right. like like you know and, and like you're not going to say no to Wes Anderson is what it seems like anyway. I don't know what Hollywood's act. Oh, Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep did a movie with Wes Anderson. Like he's getting Tilda these, Swinton, yeah. Tilda Swinton did it. Like, you know, like he's getting these actors that you're like like uh into an ensemble cast too so you're not starring in the movie you're just one of many people in this film well and it kind of makes me think i mean less with the ensemble route but it makes me think of leonardo dicaprio in django unchained Mm -hmm. like he's he for starters no one i mean i certainly would not have expected leonardo dicaprio to ever do a tarantino movie yeah totally I love him as an actor. I think he is fantastic, but I think of him as an actor. Yeah, not and, a Tarantino movie actor. And yeah, yeah, it's funny. And it is like, but again, Tarantino and Anderson have that similar thing. You want to be in a Tarantino movie as an actor. Like that would be what what a fun experience that would be. Yeah, you're not going to say no. No, no. I And I mean, the amount of work that Anderson is doing on a film is, I mean, he, he must be so involved in in the shots that are not even remotely involving actors, right? Oh, like, yeah. Like, I think the, the the landscapes that he builds or people build for him, 
Like that's got to be as much work as anything else. Mm-hmm. One of the little things I love about Anderson <laughs> is the the sentence, uh, how's that supposed to make me feel? <laughs> uh, I think it's in every movie. I'm pretty sure. I, you know, I haven't gone through and actually timestamped it or checked. But in every movie, someone says something that makes one of the actors say, how's that supposed to make me feel? <laughs> like, <laughs> like that is just a line of dialogue he loves to use as if it's like it. it and it, and it is beautiful because what it does is it is it uh, calls the person on their intention of the line they just said. So it heightens the, the tension of that moment, uh, no matter what the person says. Like, I hate you. How's that supposed to make me feel? Like, it's just such a great comeback to any intentionally emotional uh, moment. Yeah. Yeah, just a little thing that I that I keep noticing every time I watch a Wes Anderson movie. I'm like, oh, there it is. How's that supposed to make me feel? Oh, man. Yeah, any other Wes Andersonisms? Well, I mean, there's one thing that I, I've really, I, I don't know how to talk about this so much, but I love how much he finds the art in a job. And I, I know this seems weird, but like the, I mean, we, we see Max, who's a, who's a script writer, but that, what I mean more is like even his dad, who's a barber or Mr. Fox's thiefiness mm-hmm. or, um, the, the baker, the, the baker girl in Grand Budapest or the concierge, like there is a way in which he is, he is an expert at finding the artistic value in expertise like when they're all of his all of his characters they're they're the way that they go about their jobs is so beautiful and poetic yeah. as opposed to mechanical well even like the scout leaders and stuff in moonrise kingdom as well and yeah. uh and steve zizu as well as like a underwater explorer and his wife and uh, angelica houston who's like the perfect like producer of his work you know like um you're right yeah he does have a little a, a tendency to make people good at what they do uh and not only good but like great yeah and and great in such a way that again reminds us that he's telling a story but also great in a way that makes us find the beauty in being a hotel concierge yes the 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 magic of it all and like uh yeah. or and like rushmore i would say it's more about his his uh um max's way to start clubs and insight right. uh like like create something like you no know, even like the speech he gives when he first when he goes back to uh when he goes to public school and he gets I have up a few words I'd like i have to a few say. words i'd like to say and like his his manner and the way he he does it like when he gets kicked out of school and he's like uh i'd like to see some paperwork please like he's just so <laughs> formal like he's a yeah. lawyer or something um uh but but uh but yeah like that that he makes them really good at whatever it is they do well, and I think I think Rushmore is a, a good example, right? He even says to Bill Murray, "Rushmore is my thing." She, she was my thing. Rushmore. Yeah, she was my Rushmore, Max. I know. She was mine yeah. too. And so it's that that he is the consummate student, whereas Bill Murray uses that and turns that into the to the line for the love story. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, that's great. Uh, any other little things about Wes Anderson's style we want to talk about? I mean, the like we've talked a lot about the sort of deadpan delivery and the different actors he uses and the visual style and the coloring. Uh, I think we've done pretty good. The anachronistic technology he really likes. Yep, prologues that are often separate from the action of the movie, yeah. like in time, oh, but yeah. 
but mm-hmm. they're but they're certainly not not separate in mood or even the plot, right? Yeah, that there are different like yeah, framing devices that he uses within the film to tell the story. Yeah. The one thing we haven't talked about though is is like his use of music, which he does use very very well. He does. And one of the reasons that I haven't talked about it much is I I find that music when it's done well washes over me. Yeah, you don't notice it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I notice it when it's bad, and I don't notice it when it's good. And with Wes Anderson, I mean, I, I'm i sure that he is expertly, like, I, I know that he kind of likes poppier music, but mm-hmm. I can't, it, it reminds me of High Fidelity, which is a movie about music, and I couldn't tell you any of the music in that. Yeah, I mean, there's things like 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 Rushmore has a lot of like I think the Kinks are used a lot in that film, um, and I think he even said once that if he could, he would have only used Kinks songs uh, throughout Rushmore. Again, um, he's got a lot of guitar and things like that sequence when he's like walking out of the elevator and he sticks his gum on the wall and he's carrying the beekeeper box, uh, Rushmore beekeepers, you know, and it's like bam 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 out. You know the one. You know the one. Yeah, I, um, I got you. I it's like you with that scene. You're like you notice how awesome the music is in that moment. Um, and like there are other little things he does that I think like in in Fantastic Mr. Fox, a lot of the music is kind of like old timey, like played on like a you know like a like a record player with like a, a gramophone or something. Uh, and Life Aquatic, like that Life Aquatic has the most beautiful music with that guy playing guitar on the ship and he's singing these popular songs in a different language, like. <laughs> It is such a beautiful, like, recurring theme of music throughout that thing. And again, it is so Wes Anderson. Yeah. It is a guy playing popular music on an acoustic guitar singing in a different language. Well, and he likes to use uh, use it with his long tracking shots. He likes to have a lengthy tracking shot where you get to explore either the submarine or the school. Oh, yeah, we totally forgot his tracking shots. <laughs> like, the most famous signature move is, like, the side-to-side uh, tracking shot that he loves. <laughs> yeah, but he, but he likes to do those to music as well, so that it's, it's almost like it's uh, an action sequence to music, except the action is walking. Yeah, and that is something we, we've, uh, we, we uh, should point out, the, the side-to-side tracking shot. Is it's a lot. A lot of his movement is done side to side. It's not up and down. It's very rarely up and down. And if it is, it's just like down a step on the thing and then across to the side again. But it's a lot of like walking across the campsite or showing across the whole ship. Uh, it's it, it's not. Uh, it's like walking through the hotel lobby. You know, it's not like a up and down a bunch of things. Yeah, I mean, and it's. I mean, Tarantino likes his tracking shots, too, but they couldn't be more different in the way they do tracking shots. Oh, yeah. Tarantino, like, follows the action and and sometimes hangs back, whereas Wes Anderson's, like, perfectly framed the whole time. Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be on a, we're on a track and we're going to slide it sideways. And, and, and that's exactly it. It's still a reminder. I'm on a track moving along. Like, it's, he, he's not letting you believe that we're following the characters in real life. We're following the characters in a story. Yeah, and in a film. In a film, <laughs> yeah. But we should talk, because I think you want to talk about this, is uh, Wes Anderson uh, being staged, improvised. Well, I... I... What do you think? Because I am very firmly... I, I'm going to say not... Okay, I'm one foot firmly... In the belief that uh, staging Wes Anderson would be uh, uh, in an improvised way 
would would lose a lot of what makes him great. So, or it would uh, lose. It would either lose a lot of what makes Wes Anderson films so Wes Anderson films, or we would lose a lot of what makes improvisation improvisation. Right. Right. Okay. Well, for me, I felt I felt that way after watching Grand Budapest Hotel. Grand Budapest Hotel made me made me think that it would be very difficult for us to in any way take Wes Anderson and throw him on the stage. Um, that being said, watching Rushmore brought me back because Rushmore takes some of the to take strips the set pieces and strips some of the uh, the stark visual style of Wes Anderson and says, this is what I can do on a budget, on a location, with what's available. And Rushmore feels as much like a Wes Anderson movie as Grand Budapest Hotel does, as Moonrise Kingdom does. It it still takes that sort of, um, it takes those same sorts of characters where you you put children in adult situations and you you stage it in the same sort of way where you can split the frame and you still have scenes that are either uncomfortably close to the camera or awkwardly distant from the camera. Um, you still have those the, the the whimsy and the and the fun and you still have that witty dialogue and you still have the snappiness to it. Like I I could really imagine doing Rushmore on a stage. I couldn't imagine it with Grand Budapest, certainly. So, uh, yeah, I, I I agree that Grand Budapest is too far into the cinematic world that trying to stage something in that style would be near impossible and improvised. And I'm talking exclusively yes. improvised here. Because if you yes. were to, to stage it out, I'm sure we could stage any of these. But uh, where I, I, even going back all the way to Rushmore, and the places that I see it, it losing too much Wes Anderson once we put it on stage is in the, uh, like you were saying, too close to the camera or like uh, perfectly framed in that same way. We couldn't uh, achieve that same feeling on stage. We couldn't make people feel like we are too close to the camera or we couldn't have someone sitting in a chair that you can't see until the camera pans over to them. That person would have to walk in and sit down which would not give it the same feel that the Wes Anderson film, even, even in Rushmore, has. And the perfect symmetry of, of sitting in two chairs that are perfectly opposite of each other without any of the background set to achieve that symmetry, it won't have the same feel. It'll, have just, it'll look like just two people sitting in a chair. And because audiences aren't all looking at it dead on, and some of them are looking at it from like you know 10 feet to the left or 10 feet to the right, it doesn't look perfectly symmetrical to them. Uh, so to achieve that is a lot harder on a stage than I think we give it credit for. If you know what I mean, does that make sense? It it does, and I'm I, and I I don't I don't want to suggest that I think it would be easy because I I think that in order to match his framing, the deliberate deliberate nature of his framing would require a ton of work, just in awareness of what's going on on stage, so that and yeah, and if I, someone comes on, you can come on and mirror them without providing an exact mirror, but so that the visual symmetry and is kept. The, the difference here to me is that in two dimensions with a flat screen, every audience member will see it perfectly symmetrical. But on a stage, because it is three-dimensional and there is depth to it, 
it will not appear symmetrical to most of the audience members. Yeah, and I think I think that's the case, but I think unless unless we do everything at the very far back of the stage. Well, but like that's that's the thing. Like he he will happily have shots that are sometimes at the far back and sometimes that are at the far front. But but I think that you could do that well enough to get by as long as you were able to also still keep the tone and the the kind of storytelling Andersonisms. Yeah, so so I so the the tone and the storytelling and and Andersonisms we could all we could hit. We could hit those. Yeah. We could hit those tones. The other thing we couldn't hit is the thing about the children playing deadpan characters um, and children That's exactly and adult the relationships. We can't hit those because we aren't children. Uh, and so we would have to improvise that we are children, um, in which case we're going to be losing some of that Wes Andersonism. Uh, in, and so I think like I, I think the only things that we could transfer over to the stage – uh, perfectly uh, would be the storytelling stuff and the way he tells his stories, like with the uh, narrator type thing or like the framing mechanism of a narrator, uh, the character type of like that deadpan sort of uh, uh, dry delivery, um, sometimes incredibly emotional, but still deadpan somehow. Uh, somehow he has a deadpan crying Max Fisher in the back of a taxi cab. I don't know how that, how he's, he amazingly achieves it, but, but that whole, uh, that sort of thing we could hit the quirkiness of the characters like the pregnant woman that smokes and reads books to her baby like we can hit those things uh, but it would not look like a Wes Anderson film <laughs> yeah I mean the the kid thing I think it was the biggest deal breaker for me in thinking it through in re-watching some of this stuff because yeah I and, mean and, and you it would be no good having us improvise as children. I hate that enough already. And the costuming that he uses is so specific to the film, right? Like no film has similar costuming. And so in order to recreate a Wes Anderson thing, we'd have to either have 100 million costuming ideas backstage that we then dress up in as the film is being, as we're getting the suggestions and stuff like that, um, which makes it feel... Uh, uh, we're, we we have to improvise all over Wes Anderson, I guess is what I'm saying. Like we could do an improv show that was like winking at Wes Anderson the whole time, but it would never feel like Wes Anderson. It would feel like we're kind of just like making fun of Wes Anderson. Hmm. Yeah. You know? um, like and like because because like uh, or else or the other thing is we would have to sacrifice uh, some of our improvisation, you know, and we would have to plan like the costumes that we're going to all wear so that we all look like we're part of the same Wes Anderson movie uh, and we're going to have to like build a, uh, like, a li- like a little like square frame that is mimicking a television set or something like that that we act within uh, and have a soundtrack that like is perfectly fit together you know like for that one specific film because all of the different films have different soundtracks like it's super uh, his style is just so it's it's almost it's too beautiful to be able to improvise. I, I mean, I, yeah, I think that I think we lose some of the beauty of Anderson. I mean, we yes, definitively, we lose the beauty of Anderson by putting it on stage in that way, because we, we're not storyboarding our scenes in the same way. At the same time, I think things like costume, I think, I think if you can cap capture this kind of um, pastel uniform feel that is, I think, across all of his movies, 
Uh, I mean, even even you look at Rushmore and Life Aquatic, the the uniforms at Rushmore Academy and the uniforms of the uh, the Steve Zizou squad, whatever whatever mm-hmm. their name is, they're very similar, um, both in in tone and color. And so I I think that costume wouldn't be as big a deal, but I think you're right. I think we um, the set design is such an essential part of it, and and you you know how can you mimic uh the submarine how can you mimic the the alps how can you and mimic like the, the and, tree and even on to like a simpler point it's like how can you mimic uh like max and the principal sitting in the study and make that look wes anderson uh on a, a stage that we're improvising within uh unless we've prepared a set for it that is perfectly symmetrical in which case everything we do is sort of like the look of it has already been decided for us, in which case we're losing some of that improvisation. Yeah, although I think some of some of what uh, what Anderson does on stage could be achieved through lighting. In like I I the the scene between Max and the principal, I think that um, there that there is an interesting way that one could do that with um, having having lighting focus the scene in to kind of mimic that uh snappy back and forth yeah. that Anderson does. Mm-hmm. I think you could do that with uh with with a strong lighting uh practice anyway, you know, that to to know what moments are calling for that. I'm not like I Yeah, I, and I, I, and think, I, I become... think I see what you mean that it would it would it would uh in it would make people think like, oh I see they're doing that thing like to make it feel like the back and forth. Um, but I think that's as close as we'll get is we'll get to people recognizing what we're doing to try to make it seem like Wes Anderson, <laughs> but we would never have someone go like, Oh my God, it looks like Wes Anderson. Yeah. And I, and I think you're right. I think I've become convinced through, through watching more of how difficult, uh, it would be to, to have people say, Oh, that's Wes Anderson, but on stage, which we somewhat achieved with Tarantino where people said, Oh, that's Tarantino on stage. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I think. I think even with something like Tarantino, I don't think we achieved Tarantino on stage visually. I think we achieved Tarantino's characters and writing so well mm-hmm. that people forgave us the the visuals that we weren't able to achieve somewhat. Yeah, and a lot of the things we we did with Tarantino, like what were the, our way of mimicking the tracking shots uh, of having people just take really like take a long time to walk around the stage and we had the two stages so we could walk between the two stages um that idea it gave the same feeling of a tarantino tracking shot in the sense that we're watching this person walk still even though the scene is over right uh whereas with like the wes anderson tracking shots because they're so framed the whole time there is no like like uh the camera's not following the character in the same way as tarantino to give the audience that feel would almost you'd need to actually like walk uh, across a long stage um, and have them come with you. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like because if they stay still, uh, it doesn't it, uh, it, it's hard to achieve that same effect. Well, and then there's the degree of how do you capture everything that goes on in a background of a tracking shot of Wes Anderson, right? Yeah. And that's and that's where like with Tarantino, that stuff is not as as ma- it doesn't matter as much like because his backgrounds uh and i'm talking about his older work when we were researching the stuff like reservoir dogs and pulp fiction and uh, even kill bill if we want um uh but like the backgrounds uh kill bill is maybe somewhat of an exception 
Uh, but the backgrounds are just kind of like normal backgrounds and they, yeah. and they do blend in. And so it's, yeah. you don't need to, they aren't like pastel colors, perfectly symmetrical, like Wes Anderson is, that is meant to stand out and meant to be a part of it. Uh, and with, if we took that away from Wes Anderson, it would lose a lot of it. Where if we take that away from Tarantino, it doesn't lose a lot of it. Yeah, I think you're probably right on that. I think, I think for me, I would just be, I would have so much fun telling Wes Anderson stories and playing with Wes Anderson characters on stage that I, I just, I want so much for this to work. Oh yeah, I know, and this, and like you're not the only one. I would love to do it as well. I know uh, other members of the Paper Streets cast have asked me to do Wes Anderson, and uh, one day maybe I'll think of a way that we can do it. Uh, but right now, it's just like I, I, uh, I, I, if we're gonna do Wes Anderson, I want to make sure we do him justice. Yeah, because, and I don't want to like wink, wink, get it, kind of like Wes Anderson. I want it to be like people come in and they go like, whole, like the moment they walk in the theater and look at the stage, they're like, wow. This looks like Wes Anderson. And maybe part of that will come out of seeing people in the in the coming years do Wes Anderson movies. Seeing seeing the kinds of directors and writers that try and mimic him. Maybe mm-hmm. that's going to give hints as to how it's possible for uh, us to do that on stage. Maybe. Who knows? Maybe. And I, mean, I guess, again, the other fear of doing Wes Anderson is uh, I don't want to lose the improvisation of what we do. Well, no. And... To do Wes Anderson really, really well, we would lose some of that improvisation. Yeah, and I, th- I think that that's, that's one of the important things to always keep in mind is that it's, it's the blending of a genre with improvisation. And I think, yeah, and I think that, that we're already, when we're doing genre work, we start, we do start kind of losing some of that improvisation anyway. Uh, and I try so hard to keep as much of it as possible. And I think Wes Anderson is just the one that's like, like asking me to kill improv <laughs> or just to remove the improv and have just some ad living throughout this beautiful looking set we have which would would be beautiful but terrible in in the long run yeah alas alas even though wes anderson is definitely uh in my top probably top three filmmakers i, I don't think that is actually a stretch at all to say that yeah i would tarantino Anderson I would I would probably then add someone pretentious like Terrence Malick. Actually, interesting. You wouldn't interesting. go you wouldn't go Robert Zemeckis? Uh Steven Spielberg. <laughs> Steven Spielberg. Uh hey Spielberg might make it, man. You never know. He's got some really good movies under his belt. And some bad ones. Sure, but give Wes Anderson time. Uh but this this is the thing that I like about Wes Anderson. He's he is willing to uh, commit so hard to his vision, which is, I think, the the biggest problem with Darjeeling Limited. He committed to his vision in that movie mm-hmm. above and beyond everything and said, screw it, I'm making my movie. Fair enough. Hey, what about Sergio Leone? Come on, he's pretty good. He's pretty good, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, that- I'm not going to deny that. But mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, let's do some uh, quick closing thoughts on Wes Anderson. Uh, do you have a, do you have a closing, closing thought, closing statement? Um... I'm so enjoying that we have somebody who is who is making these kind of dark melon comedies, you know, where they're they're not fully comedies and they're not fully tragedies and they're they're not any one particular genre. He's he's just playing with the kinds of stories that he thinks are interesting. And it may be that he goes, well, what would be an interesting story uh, in general, you know? 
okay, well, what if one of the one of the characters was a kid? <laughs> and and, and it's, it's just so much fun to to see him play in that sort of way. And I I am I'm very interested to see where he goes from from Grand Budapest Hotel, because I can't imagine him doing a better film than that. Oh, I must say I almost agree. Grand Budapest Hotel was just like the perfect Wes Anderson film. It was. Um, yeah, uh, my closing thoughts are uh, I was alarmed when I started thinking more and more about Wes Anderson, about the beauty of it. Um, and using the word beauty, not just aesthetic or visual style, but like actually like it is beautiful to watch. Uh, and it, I, I recently watched the, the, the House Seinfeld, the television series came to be, um, and how like it was failing miserably in its first season like they thought they were going to be canceled and it was just no one the network hated it it was definitely not the kind of comedy that was supposed to be on television it's like a very different kind of comedy but it was the kind of comedy that jerry seinfeld and larry uh what's his name david larry david and jerry seinfeld wanted to do and so they committed to it and when the network told them to change something they said no and they fought tooth and nail for the uh for the Chinese restaurant scene where they're waiting in the lobby of a Chinese food restaurant. And that's the whole episode. Great bottle episode. It's beautiful. And like they, they uh, weren't going to get it out. Like the network didn't want to, they held it back until like the later in the season. Cause they thought it was going to be such a terrible episode and no one was going to like it. And that was the episode that kind of defined Seinfeld and like was one of the episodes that launched them into, Hey, this is actually the best show on TV right now. Um, <clears throat> and I feel Wes Anderson has a similar kind of uh, approach to his work where he is making what he thinks is funny, what he thinks looks beautiful, the aesthetic that he loves. And with Rushmore, especially when it was coming out, it was like, this is not going to be a popular movie. This is not even going to be a good movie. Uh, And yet when it came out, it was exactly what the people of that time wanted to see. Uh, and it is that kind of comedy that is smart. It subverts what we're used to. It challenges us in different ways. It has a melancholy. It has a sadness to it. Uh, and that carries through in all of his films. And you see that he's making these movies because he loves this aesthetic, not because he thinks it's going to sell movies. Yeah, there there is a love of what he is doing that is apparent throughout a Wes Anderson, which is why I have trouble imagining a Wes Anderson that's going to be a bomb. Because I, as an audience member, become captivated by his love for the, the, the film that he's telling. Yeah. And, and I buy into it because he's bought into it. Definitely. And so for, for me, I, I struggle to imagine a film of his that I will say is just definitively bad because he cares so much about every detail of what he's making. I think it's similar to something we see with with Quentin Tarantino, who I confess I did not expect to talk about as much during this podcast. Mm-hmm. I did not think that we were going to talk about Tarantino and Anderson being uh, comfortable bedfellows, but they are. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> well, uh, well, here we are, standing on the edge. I don't know what comes next. <laughs> Well, I think uh, I think that's good. We can call it a wrap here. Yeah, we can. Nice talking to you about this. Uh, and um, and uh, I'm glad we both still love Wes Anderson. I I can't imagine not. <laughs> All right, talk to you soon, buddy. Love you, man. Mm-hmm.